Welcome to MuggleCast 375. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And I'm Micah. We are going to start off several months of Half-Blood Prince discussions today, not by jumping into our chapter-by-chapter, which we announced last week, but we are going to talk about Half-Blood Prince as a whole, and similar to what we did with Order of the Phoenix last month, we're going to talk about the theories that people had before the book came out, so it'll be interesting to revisit what we were all thinking. But first, some news. Uh, We've been off for a couple weeks. Did you guys have nice breaks? It was because of you two that uh, we didn't record last week. <laughs> well, Where I mean, the 4th of July doing? weekend is, um, or 4th of July mid, mid-weekend. It was kind of like two weekends in a row there, but um, yeah, it was it was really nice. It was a good time. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what did you do, Micah? Where were you? I had to work. I don't have as fun of a uh, excuse oh. as Eric does, but uh, yeah, no, but also took off some time. Uh, this past week with the 4th of July holiday, so that was nice, but now back and ready to go. Yeah, Micah was so busy that I went to hand-deliver his MuggleCast mug. I was at a wedding over in New York City, and I had to uh, leave the mug at the lobby. I, he, would, he wouldn't even come out of his room. He was so busy working. Um, <laughs> I wasn't really, there. Really, Micah? No, no, I wasn't at the hotel when you were there. I was, I was oh. at the other... Uh, building or facility okay, when that's, I was working. Well, that's a story we're going by, but uh, anyway. But, I, uh, well, can I just say also how random it is that the one weekend that we're taking off, Eric is going to an event that is literally within – where you were staying was what? How many miles away from where I was? Four, 0.4 miles away from, from where you were staying. Yeah, we had both – That's crazy. My, well, my mom had uh, – not wanted to drive near the airport, so we decided to stay overnight in like Terrytown, mm-hmm. Westchester, White Plains area in New York City. Uh, n- not necessarily upstate. I'll I'll say that. For no, the it's not upstate. Uh, it's, but it's <laughs> going but, like yeah, north of north of LaGuardia, north of the city. And it turns out that Micah's uh, work hotel that they put him up in for the weekend is is point four miles down the road, and so on the way up to Connecticut, which is actually. The wedding hotel the next day, I had to drop off uh, the gift from Micah, but I did not get to see him. He was a very busy dude. That's crazy. I'm with you, Micah. When when Eric comes and drops stuff off for me, I just tell him to leave it on the sidewalk. <laughs> you just let Brooklyn uh, answer <laughs> yeah, the door. Right, yeah. Right. By the way, I have no, your no, mug no. too, Andrew. I'm Great. At it right but I will say, yeah, the, the mugs look uh, awesome. I've actually used it a few times since uh, getting it for uh, some morning coffee but uh they they look great i'm looking forward to see what the um what the patrons have to say about them you know my mom saw them on twitter and asked for one can we get her a mug would that be possible what uh, hogwarts house is she i don't know i guess we'll have to swear she wants blue just because she likes the color blue okay yeah if i asked her what house that correlates to she would have no idea i think we can do that i think that the world owes her a debt thank you for birthing you that'd be appreciated (laughs) mom what house is the color blue what what is the color blue? Mom, it's a Harry Potter thing. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so while we were off for two weeks, Chris Child announced not one but two more productions. <laughs> they are coming to San Francisco in fall 2019 and Hamburg, Germany in spring 2020. So these are the fourth and fifth cities that Chris Child will be opening in. The San Francisco one I was surprised by because... We already have a permanent one in New York, and based on what the press release was saying, it sounds like this is going to be 
staying in San Francisco probably forever. Um, it said, quote, that uh, the people who are working on this particular production have uh, worked their magic to provide the ideal West Coast home for the production. So that sounds like it's not just a limited time stop and, you know, maybe it would go down to L.A. and then maybe out to Phoenix or something like that. No, it sounds like if you are on the West Coast and you want to see The Cursed Child, San Francisco is where you're going to see it. Yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. It, it's probably expensive or more expensive to tour than it is just to put, like, staple places, like theaters, you know, strategically placed across the globe where, like right. you said, people can come to. Um I am looking at the HarryPotterThePlay.com website now, and it shows, of course, London and New York and Melbourne. Uh, and it's funny because if you look at the names of these theaters, they're all very rich. Like London is the Palace Theater, and New York is the Lyric Theater, and in Melbourne it's the Princess Theater. If you go down to Hamburg or Hamburg, it's the Meh Theater. Meh Theater. Uh-oh. Meh, or Meh, Meh. There's an R at the end. It's M E H. R oh, I see. Exclamation point. Like, meh, meh. meh. It's German, so it's kind of angry. It's very, very close to meh, as in, who cares? But uh, <laughs> pretty pretty funny. Pretty pretty funny little funny little German thing there. Yeah. Um, so the theater that it's going to be housed in San Francisco, it's got shows booked through the end of this year, and then it's going to start getting ready for Cursed Child. And it sounds like that's going to be like an all-year preparation process. Sure. So so all the money, though, that Cursed Child makes, does it just go to renovating theaters so that they can... <laughs> for new, for new perform Right, there? right. It also, by the way, makes sense that it's not touring because there's so many large set pieces and it's a very complex show. We've spoken previously about how impressive the magic is on stage. It makes sense they, that they couldn't tour certain elements of it. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder, okay, so now we have the East Coast. We have the West Coast. Is a Midwest location next? Are there enough th- theaters downtown, Eric, to host Cursed Child and other shows? Because I feel like that's one reason that L.A. didn't get the Cursed Child. They don't have many theaters. That was the question I had about why San Francisco. Like I'm, I'm, and forgive me, but I'd like to hear from people. I'm, I'm ignorant to whether or not San Francisco has like a a big theater scene, but Chicago does. I mean, Chicago has probably seven or eight uh, regular theaters for like Chicago and Broadway, and oftentimes they test uh, shows here before you know going to New York. I saw the Adams right. Family with. Nathan Lane and B.B. Newworth before it came out, and War Paint, uh, that that show about um, Elizabeth Arden and um, SpongeBob tested here. The Share Show, the Share Show, right now just going to move to Broadway. Just opened, yeah, exactly. So they they test the you know shows here, but the the really long staples that have stayed here were Wicked uh, for a very long time. Wicked sales here, I think, either rivaled or compared to, or it ran longer than that in New York. So. Um, Wicked was huge here, but that's the last time I remember. But hey, that's about witches, sort of. Well, and Hamilton's here. I know it's not as long as Wicked, but Hamilton is here seemingly permanently. Yeah, you're right. And and they're touring, right? Right. Yeah. So, so 
I, I'm uh, selfishly hopeful that Chicago is the next city to get Cursed Child. <laughs> um, but this is good news for people on the West Coast. You know, like L.A., as far as I can remember, and I might embarrass myself here because I was living there for nine years, but I can only think of one theater that can host a major production like that. Um, I know it hosted Wicked for a while, the Pantages Theater. It hosted Hamilton when it was touring for a while. I feel like that's where Cursed Child would go if it could at all. And that theater is right down the road from the Wizarding World theme park. It's a short jaunt up the 101. You could practically walk there. So it would have been very cool if Cursed Child got that theater and there was the play and the park in the same city. Um, That would have been a major draw. So I, I imagine that L.A. was trying to get the show, but they just didn't because of the limited number of theaters. That there. is interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, like Micah said, with all the profits, they could just build a new theater uh, in That's LA. That's what I, I mean, they really could do that. They, they, because in a major city, because it'll be successful from now until the end of time. So why not build your own theater? <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> Anyway, um, little other news I wanted to mention. It is summertime, so we get all these anniversaries, Harry Potter anniversaries during the summer. Chamber of Secrets turned 20 years old this month. It was published in July 1998 in the UK. It came out a year later in the United States, June 1999. Uh, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Chamber of Secrets. You know, I hear people lately talking down on this book. And I think it was a perfectly fine direct sequel. I like it a lot. I think it expands the world in really key ways. People were hating? Where were you seeing this? I, there was a ranking that several of your hypable writers did uh, on, on Twitter wow, last night. your writers, night. Andrew. Yeah. Just yeah. Like your it, people. Your people were telling you about it. And, and Chamber of Secrets is like dead to last on, on some of these. So I... I could be getting the facts wrong, but I, I'm pretty well, you sure. You realize that, some book has to be if it's well. Some be. book does have to yeah. be, and maybe that just means that all the other Harry Potter books are good. But I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the Basilisk, and people don't like you know the idea of the petrification or something. I, I think it's all brilliant. And I just want to say for Chamber of Secrets' birthday, Chamber, I love you. Well, I'm sorry that I'm saying this on its birthday, but. The earlier books, I would rank low on the list. I like the later books because they're darker, they're heavier. Harry's more mature. Yeah. They're deeper stories. Sure. So I would place those early three in the bottom <laughs> bottom three, to be honest Oh, with three you. is my top, though. Three and six. But it sounds like, Eric, what you're saying is that maybe I should look for new people. <laughs> New writers. <laughs> no, no, everyone's entitled I, to their opinion. I'm saying. Well, I mean, maybe Hypable should do uh, an article month celebrating the merits of Chamber of Secrets to make up for. Well, I don't know. I think you're right. Maybe, maybe I should hire new people. And you know, hiring is challenging. Uh, I know this. It can be a struggle to find the right person to hire at Hypable. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash MuggleCast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash MuggleCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-U-G-G-L-E-C-A-S-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash MuggleCast. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. I'm sorry, Karen, Danielle, and Kristen, you're being replaced. I blame Eric. I see what you did there. That was a nice tie to the ad. Um, I'm going to go to ZipRecruiter and say you must love Chamber of Secrets. All three of them put it as their bottom two. I swear, all three of them. So it wasn't the last one. Um, Well, within their bottom two. The argument you can make there, of course, is that if it's seventh, that means that it's the best. Oh. First is the worst, seventh is the best. Is that how that works? Well, seven is the one with the hairy dog. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Anyway, so um, Haploid Prince turns 13 years this month. It was published July 16th. 2005 and what better time than now to kick off finally after all this time half blood prince chapter by chapter we said previously when we first started this podcast half blood prince had just came out the book was only about a month old so we were speculating about half blood prince left and right we were kind of just going all over the map talking about various elements of the sixth book so that's why we never did chapter by chapter but it just doesn't feel right not doing chapter by chapter uh, for this book. We're completionists. Completionists. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mentioned, too, that I, I think we, we, we all mentioned we're re- reforming the segment and, and adding some, like, really cool new features to it, new, like, um, shiny things to make it real exciting and update it uh, for the year. But... I think the whole section and segment will be justified if we can just get more Andrew Sims doing Dumbledore impressions. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. That's one I, I voice I enjoy doing. <laughs> I love that, dude. <laughs> All right. Well, before yeah. we do chapter by chapter, and that's going to start next week, we wanted to talk about the book on a whole. And we thought we could start with some stories about midnight release parties. Did either of you go to midnight releases for Half-Blood Prince? I don't think think so i'm trying to remember it was 13 years ago at this point but uh Ugh, we're so old yeah well i think it's worth saying though too that this is about the time that i found MuggleNet and and that i started to get involved with you guys and and the podcast because the podcast came about as a result of the sixth book right so mm-hmm. i don't think so i i really may have just been one of those people that went and, and picked up the book and and that was it mm. wow from non-midnight release person to muggle caster in three months flat <laughs> yeah it's all things it's never been done before it will never be done again right we should have asked you if you went to a midnight release party that's an important factor would have, in yeah, hiring we would have people. vetted you our vetting wasn't what it used to be. you didn't have <laughs> zip recruiter back then no yeah. no <laughs> did you go to one eric i was at yes there was one in um the downtown district, it was this brand new downtown district. They had just like spruced up Hudson, Ohio, and they had this whole downtown area that was like really, really cool with this like brand new smoothie shop and the town's orchestra or like the 
Ohio Philharmonic or like the local, whatever the local branch of the orchestra came out and played songs inspired by, or songs that like were similar to Harry Potter. Like I'll never forget them marching down the street in this brand new downtown district. So half of it was still under construction, but it was like wide open spaces, kind of like a field playing a night on bald mountain. Like it was just really, really cool. Everybody got really into it. Hmm. And the learned owl bookstore uh, organized uh, the whole event. And I, I just remember being very full on love for Harry and uh, mango peach smoothies. So <laughs> it, was, it was a good way to spend the book sixth evening. Yeah. I actually didn't go to a Half-Blood Prince Midnight release party. I went to four, five, and seven. Oh. And I'm not sure why. However, I did pre-order the book via Amazon and it's funny, I still remember to this day, like I visually remember going to the mailbox and pulling the book out of the mailbox because Amazon had wrapped them in special boxes um, for uh, release day. And it was just so exciting to get that darn book in the mail. But I wish I could remember why I didn't go to a midnight release. I, I think I was kind of impressed by the fact that Amazon was able to deliver it on release day because I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> so maybe I just wanted to try it. But that was a viable option, I have to say, like and and yeah. I remember people at the release party who didn't buy it that night. Uh because you know, they're like going to go to bed anyway pretty soon after getting home from this event and they did the Amazon thing. Right. It's like, well, I'll have it in the mail for me tomorrow. Like I won't even need to worry about it. And then there were the people that did both and bought it at night and then had a second copy to live yeah. in the morning. That was um, one of the probably one of the first times like people started being really impressed by Amazon. Like, whoa, they can get it yeah. to us the day of release. That's so awesome. Which it's interesting to put a year to that because that was a long time ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I wonder if they had special trucks just for those books because I would assume that there were what, hundreds of thousands of pre orders that they had to deliver, if not millions. Yeah. yeah. And and they probably had to keep them under lock and key until midnight. So they had to, you know, they couldn't get into the mail system earlier than than midnight that day. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and what did you do though, Andrew? Because at this time you're running arguably the the largest Harry Potter fan site in the world, and and you're getting it on the release day. You hadn't gone the night before, which means you probably had to stay offline until you finished the book. Yeah. Well, I remember. Yeah. I, I can't remember what happened. <laughs> I don't know. It's all a blur. That was the days of dial-up, too. So it wasn't exactly difficult to stay offline. <laughs> I, had, I had a flip phone at best. So it's not like I was going to easily see spoilers. Um, but, yeah. So we asked on Patreon.com slash MuggleCast for some of our supporters to share their midnight release stories. Taylor said, it was my first midnight release party and my best friend and I went as Ginny and Luna mainly because we had red and blue shirts and used red and blue towels as our robes. My parents thought we were too young at 12 to go by ourselves, so my dad embarrassingly stayed with us the whole entire time. Eye roll emoji. I started the book in the car and did not put it down until 6 the next morning. I immediately jumped on MuggleNet to get all the reactions because I was in such shock. I was in so much shock, and I also needed to read Hinny fanfic right that very second. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't blame your dad for staying with you the entire time. If you're 12, it's pretty young to be on your own. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
Um, Laura says, I was at a two-week-long sleepaway camp and was so upset about missing the release date that my mom drove three hours to pick me up a few days early and take me to Barnes & Noble for the release party with friends that night. I got home exhausted, but stayed up all night to read the book. I got a lot of flack from camp friends for leaving early, but it was worth it. Another Laura here. My original plan was to wake up and go to the store early on the day the book came out with my best friend and pick up our books. However, my cousin had other shocking plans. She happened to be shopping at a local supermarket at midnight and saw the book out and got me my copy. So she came to my house at 2 a.m. banging on my back door and startling me awake. We did not have cell phones at this point. I was really out of it and simply wanted to see how many pages the book had. However, my eyes glimpsed the last line. I was not wearing my glasses, and I thought the last line of the book was Harry walked away from Hermione and Ron Graves. <laughs> totally not line, the line, LOL. Graves. Yeah. And I went to bed terrified <laughs> for my two favorite characters. And when I finally read the last page with my glasses two days later, I found it funny. <laughs> wow, that's terrifying. There you go. Uh, Miranda said, I remember going to Barnes & Noble with my mom for the midnight release. We were slash are both huge Harry Potter fans. I don't remember much else about getting it, but I do remember having to go to day camp that following Monday and not quite being finished reading it yet. I got yelled at for not playing kickball with everyone else and reading Harry Potter instead. I kept reading anyway. (laughs) Sarah M. says, I was in Australia. Not sure they did midnight release parties, and I wasn't into Potter at that time, but I worked in a mall with a bookshop, and I remember at least two occasions when I was working, and there was a line that snaked past my shop and out the mall front door. People young and old dressed up in capes and hats with fake wands, owls, and cats to purchase their new book. I'm a huge reader, so I loved the sense of excitement that a book was generating. But it still took me another decade to get interested enough to read it for myself. Huh. Mm. Tough sell. And now she's a patron of ours. Welcome, Sarah. We read all these comments uh, before recording. Thanks to everybody who shared the stories. It's nice to read all these. Brings back some good memories. Yeah. But, um, so let's talk. We have a couple things we want to talk about regarding Half-Blood Prince. I think one of the most interesting things about the development of the book, and this is very well known, um... J.K. Rowling originally wrote parts of Half-Blood Prince originally for Chamber of Secrets. And to the point where Half-Blood Prince was almost the title for book two. I wonder if it would have ranked higher on people's lists if this was if book two was Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. (laughs) If there was more, I don't know, snake backstory. But it was all cut and eventually moved to Half Blood Prince. It's just so interesting because I, I often think of Chamber of Secrets being like a really, really good direct sequel. You learn more about Harry's enemy in like a really cool way because you see him when he was at school. And if there was more Snape stuff, like getting into what Hogwarts was like for Snape growing up or that, that he and his friends, like that he called himself the Half Blood Prince. I mean, if the title of book two was almost Half Blood Prince, surely there would have been a lot more Snape in Chamber of Secrets. And I don't know if that would have cast like a dark cloud over, I mean, an even darker cloud over all the murders with the basilisks and stuff. But because Snape didn't really have anything directly to do with the Chamber of Secrets getting opened um, either time, he, I I understand why it doesn't fit, but it's interesting to think what would have been. Yeah. 
It does and it doesn't, though, because the Horcrux, to me, is the key piece that ties both of these books together. We we found a Horcrux in Chamber of Secrets, but we didn't realize that we found it. And if you would have had this backstory, things would have come to light a lot sooner. And, and you can see how the flow would have been disrupted. Right. Right. Because you're you're taught about Horcruxes in part in Half-Blood Prince. If you would have gotten that all the way in book two, you would have known how Voldemort was able to do the things he was doing and, and what his overall plan, or at least you probably could have guessed at it. So I think the fact that she separated them had a large part to do with the truth about the Horcruxes. That's so interesting. I think the other thing is that... Harry comes to admire the Half-Blood Prince before knowing who he is. Um, and then Harry, once he learns from Snape himself that he is the Half-Blood Prince, he's like, whoa, wait, what? I admired this guy. This is a weird feeling. So suddenly, so if this was in book two, Harry would have had these conflicted feelings earlier about Snape instead of hating him for the, for the first few books. And I think hating Snape for, what, books basically one through five, even six, um, works well for the plot. Because as a reader, you're supposed to not like him, too. And then once you learn that he's actually working for Dumbledore against Voldemort, it's like, whoa. Yeah, and we're just not sure about him for, like, a very long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's, like, that's probably the mystery of the Harry Potter books um, is, you know, Snape's loyalty. There's a whole book about it coming out right before the seventh book, you know, this, the Great Snape Debate, I think it was from Scholastic. But um, you you just kind of, it, it would have tipped uh, the hand a little bit and, and the rest of the books would, would not have been as open to be about any one just thing. Like the fact that we were able to continue to question Snape's loyalties until the bitter end is, is pretty exciting. Um, I like that he's a bit of an enigma and I like that we you know, each book slowly colors in that slowly paints that painting um, instead of giving it to us all at once or, or too soon. Yeah. So Joe said, speaking about this, cutting stuff for Chamber and moving it to Half Footprints, she said, quote, it became clear to me during the writing of that book that I had two major plot points here that really did not work too well together side by side. So one had to be pulled out. It became clear immediately that. So what are these major plot points? Eric, you have a couple ideas, I think. Yeah, Micah, I, I like your idea about the Horcruxes. I was trying to think of sort of the, obviously the diary, which is a Horcrux, is super, super huge for Chamber of Secrets. But it, it serves to illustrate, as I said earlier, like who Voldemort was and Voldemort as a kid. And this whole thing about there was a boy called Tom Riddle um, mm. that you learn about in Chamber of Secrets sort of at the very end is intriguing and exciting and so i think that's definitely the diary its influence over Ginny, some of the early stuff as it pertains to voldemort because we've only seen him be once before at this point as like a, a hidden figure in albania and then the back of Quirrell's head but we learn a lot more about voldemort and what he did to the chamber of secrets in the chamber of secrets book so i think that's one of them and then i guess the other one is just Severus's time at, at, at Hogwarts as a kid. I mean, that to me, like how he became the Half-Blood Prince is you can kind of see how it might have fit if we're talking about other people's school experiences other than Harry's. But 
I don't know. I just think maybe that those because Joe said they were side by side. The plots were side by side or they didn't work together side by side. I think that might be because they were, I don't know, similar or all about mm-hmm. something that wasn't Harry. I'm not sure on that, but I, I think it's basically Voldemort's time at school and Snape's time at school. And you know what? Half-Blood Prince is also about Voldemort's time at school. So I think she just kind of utilized um, the backstory and the pensive and stuff a lot better in book six to tell simultaneous stories about our heroes uh, yeah. or our yeah, villains. And even in Order of the Phoenix, we're starting to get hints about Snape at Hogwarts. And we yeah. we see some of his memories, and Harry starts to realize that maybe his dad was a bit of a D. Yeah. <laughs> Unfairly. <laughs> uh, so that's something that maybe could have been considered for Chamber of Secrets as well, and then was pushed, and then spread yeah. out across Order of the Phoenix, and then, of course, Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Dumbledore does tell Harry about his father saving Snape's life at the end of book one. So that might have set it up for you mm. know, going into better detail right away in book two mm. about Snape being bullied by James, that sort of thing. A little relic that once was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. once was. So um, in preparation for today's discussion, I actually went back and listened to some of the earliest episodes of MuggleCast. Uh-huh. Uh, I skimmed through because it's hard to listen to kid versions of ourselves doing a very different podcast and audio quality was very different it's hard for me to accept that i once okayed such a production but um Uh also we were speaking so fast my god (laughs) 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 like excited teenagers yeah basically you You all mellowed out yeah well like you and jamie in particular talk really fast i would say ben talked moderately fast I was talking a little fast, and of course, the higher voice. Eric definitely sounds younger, but listening to some of that, it just feels like some of it feels like it was yesterday. Like it's really weird that I can remember some of that stuff. But yeah. anyway, um, one question: we we were playing a lot of voicemails in the early days. Even like the, the episode four, we were already doing voicemails, <laughs> and we had a lot of people calling in about. Um, what they thought about Half-Blood Prince and how it could lead into Deathly Hallows. And, of course, one of the big discussions was the Horcruxes. Um, There was one voicemail saying who will help Harry search for the Horcruxes. Of course, we thought Ron and Hermione, but Eric was also hoping for Ginny, which Mm. cracks me up because to this day, you're still, like, gunning for justice for Ginny. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess that's true. Book Ginny is Where's really the cool. Ginny Funko? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where is the Ginny Funko? But <laughs> Book Ginny is, you know, and Ginny is not once illustrated in the Chamber of Secrets Illustrated. They have 119 <laughs> illustrations. Not one of them is of Ginny, and she's a huge part of Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. A- AKA top book. Um, I think you have yeah. a crush on Ginny. Now I'm all fired up. Thanks, dude. Um, yeah. Book Ginny is we great. Guys. We were also wondering if Harry could accept help. Which right. I, I thought was kind of interesting, and I yeah I think he gets a lot of help and accepts it in Deathly Hollows. Yeah, uh, there was a voicemail about um, the Godric Gryffindor Horcrux being the Sorting Hat, but Jamie was wondering how Voldemort could have broken in and Horcruxed the Sorting Hat. We still don't know, oh. by the way, how to create a Horcrux. Well, it's weird. He does it with uh, Tiara. He literally breaks into Hogwarts and mm. besmirches the diadem. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, 
we were also wondering if Voldemort knows when one of his Horcruxes is destroyed. I, we definitely learned the answer to that. I mean, Voldemort gets enraged. That's in the movieism. Oh, it, it's not a book thing. It's a movieism. I'm pretty pretty sure that in the books, the only way he knows they're gone is when he goes to the empty patch of grass outside Little Hangleton, where Dumbledore took the ring. Because hmm. um, I, I mean, in the in the movies, it's very visceral that he feels it when they're destroyed but in the books there's that line from dumbledore that's like i'm pretty sure he's so far removed uh from his detached souls at this point that he would not be able to uh feel hmm. or tell. all right chat if you have anything to add to this let us know i think I'm you're curious. right eric i i yeah. distinctly remember it being a movie thing where he really feels that connection of the horcrux is being destroyed though it would make sense for it to be the case that as a part of him is being destroyed, he would feel it. But I guess technically it's right. not really a part of him. It's well, a part of somebody else. He might be else. feeling more mortal, right? Like yeah. just, just slightly more like eh, death is something to be afraid of. Because Harry maybe. feels when he's happy in the book and when he's angry. Yeah. But oh, that's true. I, I, and that's a Horcrux connection. But yeah. it would have probably made Harry's task that much more difficult if Voldemort could have felt every time a Horcrux was destroyed because you would think that he would have been able to easily prevent against the others being right. found. Oh, he would have hidden them right oh, away. Oh, there's only yeah. four left, only three left, only two left. Right. And uh, um, the movie did it right. I, I think because it also made you start to believe that because both Harry and Voldemort were feeling the same thing, that there was this inevitable connection of Harry being a Horcrux and once that's finally learned, you know that Harry has to confront his fate. So getting back to these early episodes, Kevin, and related to this, Kevin was wondering if J.K. Rowling set up the book so that Harry has to reveal to Voldemort that the Horcruxes are gone. He was kind of envisioning this end scene where it's like, guess what? Mm. All the Horcruxes <laughs> are gone. It's time to die. <laughs> I think I think Harry has that in his showdown with them with Voldemort though. Yeah. In the Great Hall. He kinda tells him you were foolish and he remember he keeps calling him Tom. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I don't know either. But, My uh, evidently now I'm questioning everything. My mind is evidently so plagued by the movie. Oh. <laughs> what do the patrons respond? Uh well Nolan said it's a movie thing, just like Harry and his Horcrux senses tingling whenever he got close to them <laughs> oh yeah senses tingling <laughs> yeah spidey hairy um <laughs> so let's talk about questions we had he- let's let's back up now <laughs> we should have probably spoken about these first uh some big questions heading into half blood prince micah what what do you think were some of the biggest ones there were definitely a lot of them and and I mentioned this was about the time that, that I found MuggleNet, and uh, one of the areas that I used to frequent on MuggleNet was the editorial section. I think it was probably one of the best-known sections of the site, and one of the uh, authors over there, Brandon Ford, who we actually had on the podcast many, many years ago, uh, wrote a section called The Underground Lake, and I always used to anticipate these editorials coming out to read about theories on you know the remaining books and um i think probably the biggest question going into the sixth book is who is the half-blood prince i mean we always like to dissect and pick apart 
uh, the the title of these books and try and get a sense for for what they mean. But uh, there was a lot of theorizing that was going on out there, and 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 Brandon himself, I think, as Eric put in here, pointed out that uh, he didn't really think that. Uh, it was going to matter who he is, but more so what was his significance uh, to Harry. Um, but there was thoughts that Harry was the half blood prince. Voldemort was the half blood prince. Um, McLagan. <laughs> there was a, a J.K. Rowling revealed that a, a character that was going to be introduced in book six was named McLagan. People were like, "Hmm, is he the half blood prince? Interesting." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fun little things like that and um even the was it rufus scrimjower uh yeah the lion mane the introduction of of the minister yeah 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 um was also people thought he was the half-blood prince because lions are the kings of the jungle um Mm. and their kids are the princes so there was a lot of royalty a lot of royal hints being dropped anvil sized hints um as we used to call them but uh the the identity was was huge and brandon in his uh article about you know whether or not it matters did point out that like all of the um elements of that that get the title even if they're sort of mundane like the goblet of fire doesn't really like it's not the goblet itself that matters but it is the connection to harry and snape's connection to harry you know, as we've just been discussing, is a long time coming to fruition in this big reveal. Um, that I think it's it's pretty clever to look at the the titles in this way. Um, and in general, the underground lake, which is preserved on MuggleNet, um, is really kind of cool. It really helped uh, in developing this discussion because all of the old theories are still there. Um, it's just easy to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what was also significant was just learning that Snape was half blood. Yeah. Learning, you know, Voldemort is somebody who's only after pure bloods and then for Snape to be half blood, that's pretty big yeah. deal. And, and Voldemort for such a powerful wizard to be half blood, I mean, really. Oh, gosh, yeah, well, what some of my best earth? friends are muggleborn. Well, what I find interesting though is is I don't think I ever read something where you dissected the title and you pulled the prince out of it as potentially being a surname as being you know somebody's last name everything that i saw Mm. looked at it as just you know there was some not not necessarily royalty but there was some something to do with somebody's lineage it it wasn't nobody hit the nail on the head and said oh prince is actually somebody's last name yeah yeah or the artist formerly known as prince um i think that Two, it's really kind of cool that J.K. Rowling, who is the expert name dropper of all time, um, you know, like held back from putting the surname Prince into the world prior to Half-Blood Prince, that she was able to kind of hold back so that we couldn't guess it. She reused Evans a couple times uh, to mean not people at all related to Lily Evans, but withheld Prince. So that was kind of clever and cheating at the same time. Right. One of the other big questions coming out of Order of the Phoenix and and heading into Half Blood Prince was, "Remember my last Petunia, or Andrew, if you would like to." Remember my last. I just mumbled. He's double needs some coffee before he gets going. Remember that. La- <laughs> Remember my last Petunia. 
Remember my last, Petunia. Petunia, remember my last. Remember my last, Petunia. All right. I'm keeping all of this. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So, yeah, this was a big reveal in the fifth book. There was clear correspondence that took place between Dumbledore and Petunia prior to the howler that gets sent um, at the beginning of the book, right? Yeah, Yeah. presumably. I was very excited about this particular element of the story because it was nice to hear that Dumbledore did have some communication with the Dursleys. We were always led to believe that they they put up a tall wall between themselves and the Wizarding World. So for Petunia to accept a little bit of communication from Dumbledore, I thought was good. It made me happy. It it hinted that she cared, that she that she was somewhat interested in taking care of Harry. Yeah, and it kind of maybe softens the blow that for most of Book Five, Dumbledore is avoiding Harry. When you find out that like he's corresponding with Petunia, or the voice that you heard from the Howler in the beginning of the book, which Harry does not recognize, was actually him. That it still it still gives the impression, like you said, that he's corresponding, that he's working to protect Harry still. Um, I mean, it's in that moment that Petunia decides that Harry has to stay at Privet Drive, even in spite of all the trouble. She cares. She wants to protect her she, her her sister's son. She just knows the importance of it. And and once again, the Underground Lake article does a really good job. Um, Brandon does a really good job of sort of bullet pointing what his last may have been, because we later find out. Um, that it, it was really just the one letter that said everything uh, that Dumbledore left with Harry on the doorstep, that that is the letter that he's or the last correspondence that he's talking about. So in reality, Dumbledore has not very much been communicating with Petunia um, at all. But, but they did as children. They did as ch- Yeah, that's the other. Well, thing. I should they- say Petunia as a child did write to Hogwarts and get denied mm. that history is really like cute and and like yeah. um obviously very important for petunia because i think dumbledore was probably respectful enough to this muggle child to let her know that yes unfortunately it would not be possible for her to study at hogwarts but i think he like figured out a way to let her go gently and she still carried those resentments but i think as far as dumbledore is concerned she has like some kind of weird soft spot Mm-hmm. Um, for him. Jordan, who's listening live, adds, I don't know if she was interested in taking care of Harry, but more so taking care of the last part of Lily. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's a good okay. point. That's cool. I mean, yeah. they kind of go hand in hand, but I think that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I tend to agree with Brandon here. He, he says, in a nutshell, I think this is what the letter contains. One, condolences on the loss of her sister. Yeah, I think that's true. Two, Full detailed explanation as to how and why her sister died. I do agree with that. I think that Dumbledore would have um, wanted to be as clear as possible, both if she wanted to tell Harry one day, and just because Dumbledore doesn't hold that sort of information back from a fellow adult, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I think he would have been respectful enough to explain it all, even though unbeknownst to him, Pizunia would just repress it. And I think Petunia would have greatly appreciated so much detail 
into how her sister died because nobody else was going to tell her. So she may have carried that appreciation through the rest of her life and thus was willing to help Dumbledore out. Uh, Third thing, who the child on her doorstep is. Oh, yeah, I guess that would be helpful. And the significance of the scar. Um, I think that's there. Dumbledore probably would have been a little bit speculating, a little bit vague on purpose. Um, But he didn't know. Nobody knew what it really, really was. Um, Hopefully Lily would have been able to recognize that it was Harry. I mean, Snape can see Lily's eyes and Harry. So, yeah, certainly Petunia can as well. Well, babies, when they're so young, they're so malleable. Um. Number four, the warning about Voldemort and his Death Eaters. At this point, Dumbledore won't have known whether Voldemort is gone never to return or just resting. This section of the letter probably warns Petunia that Voldemort killed her sister in order to get to Harry, and that he or his followers may find her and try again to kill Harry, and that they, the Dursleys, could be in danger. That's an interesting point, Um, that from that timeline, that period in time, the Dursleys may not have been safe if it weren't, of course, for number five, the blood charm. Um, and Brandon suspects that he, that Dumbledore would have explained then and there, and I think this much is confirmed in canon, then and there that Dumbledore would have explained how the blood charm works as far as as long as Harry has some space uh, that he can call home, that she will be protected that the dirt that her family will be protected and Harry will be protected from any and all outside influence. Um, you know, dark magic because of the blood connection that is shared between the whole family. So I, I think that that's pretty, you know, up to, up to standards. I think that's pretty, um, yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense that those sort of elements would all be in that one letter that Dumbledore refers to as his last. All right. So uh, just some other questions here. Where is Wormtail? <laughs> he took a book off. Didn't he did he take a book off. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was out doing his thing, trying to help Voldemort. It's really weird that he's missing from Order of the Phoenix. Such a long book, and we really just have no clue at all whatsoever. I mean, he's huge in Goblet of Fire. He's the one guy that brings Voldemort back to his body and in book five he's I don't even I don't I'd be surprised if he was mentioned Um, he's keeping Voldemort's house clean keeping him protected well that's the thing when he shows up in Half-Blood Prince as a servant of Snape like just and you know now the movie's infiltrating my memory of just being this lurking at doors bumbling you know housekeeper uh definitely not the what I think I or many other fans would have expected uh that he would be so dishonored and so I don't know just relegated to the side action. I mean people thought he was on a huge mission. Another question the the classic we were asking at the end of every book, who would take over defense against the dark arts? <laughs> I don't, I don't think any of us said it would be Snape. No. But I mean, yeah, it was right there in front of us the whole time. It's super, super clever. Well, you would have had to have thought it would have happened eventually. Right. Maybe. I don't want to be like, oh, I knew all along. But it just just felt like a long time coming. Yeah. It's clever the way it happens, though, because it really drives the whole plot forward, because it means that Snape is not going to be at Hogwarts another year. 
or you know it means or that he won't be in that position for longer than a year it kind of works towards the end result of snape leaving i know he comes back as headmaster the next year but right. it, it it all builds towards that and harry being able to become an auror um like that conversation with mcgonagall about oh you know slughorn is perfectly fine to accept your dismal potions grade um huh. in his newt class so you can still become an R is huge mm-hmm. um, yeah so and speaking of snape another big question was why does dumbledore trust snape and this was uh there was another editorial on this right yeah brandon guessed this one correctly actually props to where it's due this was from october 7th 2004 and brandon ford predicted my theory is that dumbledore caught snape doing some illegal activity and had a talk with him mm. so that's pretty on the nose um yeah pretty accurate so it's just so interesting you know especially the early days of our podcast like we were mentioning earlier the beginnings of our half-blood prince recap and figuring it all out the what we hit on that is or isn't a hundred percent you know true we're still getting tweets about things we said in early episodes like before episode 100 before the seventh book came out about what was and you know correct that we just randomly guessed and i think that you know close enough reading there are clues and there are things in these books that allow us to make these guesses and i and i think our general like gut feeling in talking with each other about these books for such a long time has led us to it's gifted us with some i don't know maybe intuition but it it is ultimately up to joe to to change that at any time if she needs to to be clear, though, this illegal activity, you're referring to his love for Lily? No, he was listening at the door in the hogshead. He was trespassing. Oh, that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, but, it, but, I mean, in, relate, in regards to specifically why Dumbledore trusts Snape. Mm. Um, so I think that because he caught Snape listening and he knows that Snape betrayed Lily with the prophecy that Lily that Snape could later come back and say... I've made a terrible mistake is all because he caught him trespassing at the hogshead. Right. I think. Right. Right. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it is a stretch. Betraying Voldemort. You mean? Betraying oh, you Lily. Betraying well, Lily. Yeah. Betraying Lily and, and James by giving the prophecy to Voldemort. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But hmm. at that same time, Snape was earning Dumbledore's trust by bringing the prophecy to him too. Uh, yeah. Well, Snape came, the way I see it is he came back, like, racked with guilt, and Dumbledore knew that this man was trying to atone for the sin of having, like, because he, he agreed to betray Voldemort only after Voldemort didn't spare Lily. Like, mm. he asked Voldemort to spare Lily, and, and Voldemort, to his credit, was actually going to, mm-hmm. until she wouldn't move out of the way. Mm-hmm. All right, so something else that we got out of this, um, or something else that came out prior to the release of Half-Blood Prince were a few of the chapter titles. I don't really remember speculating over these, but uh, we did hear J.K. Rowling revealed Spinner's End, Chapter 2, Draco's Detour, Chapter 6, and Felix Felicis, Chapter 14. So, um, you know, Felix Felicis, was that introduced prior to Book 6? It's a good no. question. It's possible, as with many things in the Potter series, it got mentioned somewhere along the way, but I don't think so because I know that people actually thought that good old Felix was the Half Blood Prince. 
<laughs> yeah. Felix that, is a person. Felix yeah. very much struck me as being a person. I remember yeah. thinking that. And I remember really? a lot of people thinking that. So that was kind of the the tease of that chapter, misleading everybody. Nobody knew what the hell it was. And it does sound like a person's name. Yeah, definitely does. And um, the others, I'm sure there was speculation. I know as we've kind of gone through the different uh, editorials that Brandon has written, he speculated on on all these different chapter titles. So encourage people to uh, head on over to the Underground Lake. All you have to do is google it and it'll come up and take a look at it and as mentioned we spoke to him way back i think it was episode 55 of mm. of muggle cast so over 300 episodes ago is that fair to say mm-hmm. yeah um, but maybe he'll come back you know we're spending a lot of time talking uh about half-blood prince over the course of the next couple of months so uh, definitely That'd somebody cool. who uh was good at picking apart theories and and you know, I like I said was was always a a great read. Yeah, Spinner's End is another thing we weren't introduced to prior to Half Blood Prince, from what I'm seeing. So that's something else. Like that could have had wild guesses. Yeah, it's so non relevant. End of a spider. It's yeah, it's so non relevant to the to the plot. It's just the street that Snape grew up on, right? Yeah. Um, but b- having it be released as one of the 37 chapter titles of the book and you're just like oh my god this is gonna be huge um, right just so like mcclagan again like the character mcclagan you just think it's gonna be so important yeah all right so uh to wrap up today's show uh we're gonna have some voicemails let's talk about some things outside of half-blood prince um we've gotten quite a few voicemails over the past few weeks so thanks to everybody who's called in Let's listen to some of them now. Hey, guys. Timothy from Alabama here. Um, Roommates and I were doing a Harry Potter drinking game the other night, and during one of my brief moments of lucidity during Goblet of Fire, I noticed that Dumbledore walks up to a sort of a cabinet full of artifacts and is talking about looking for details he might have missed about Voldemort, and he's staring right at a sort of sculpture of the Deathly Hallows symbol. Uh, what definitely looks exactly like it, just in a sort of sculpture form. And we know that Rowling uh, was working with the filmmakers, but this was, you know, two years before the uh, seventh book came out. And could be a coincidence, but I haven't heard anyone talk about it before, and I just happened to notice it, and I was just wondering what you guys thought. If, uh, maybe she had sort of shared with them this sort of symbol and its importance to Dumbledore. And I don't know, just interested to hear what you guys thought about the show. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, there's actually photos, and we'll have to include this photo in the show notes. It is pretty surprising, especially when Dumbledore says that he's looking for clues. Um, Do you guys see this? I linked to it in the show notes. Yeah. It really does look like the Deathly Hallows symbol, both of the things in the case. Like, there's triangular objects. The one on the right looks like the Triforce from Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But... As Timothy points out, there, the timing makes it difficult to believe that this was done on purpose because the movie came out in 2005. It was probably filmed in 2004. Mm-hmm. Deathly Hallows, the book didn't come out until 2007. Did J.K. Rowling have the idea that early? I think she mm-hmm. talks. I think she's talked about when she devised the symbol. 
like the wand with the circle and the. Mm. But then the other question is, would she bring that to them for that particular scene? I don't know. It would be an amazing coincidence if she did it. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, these... I'm going to side with coincidence. Um, yeah, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to guess that maybe Rowling knew. Because when has J.K. Rowling really ever done the movies any favors? <laughs> well, she's told them what they couldn't do. She saved us all from a Dumbledore telling Harry about a young girl, kind of. Yeah, but but I don't know. This yeah. just seems so small. It's amazing. If, if, if she did, it'd be amazing. But I, it just seems like, why would she go out of her way for this? I can imagine though, like our our caller said, he was like on a on a drinking trip, like just being like mind completely blown after looking <laughs> yeah. at this in the in the cabinet. Rubs his eyes to make sure he's he's seeing correctly. Yeah, mm. yeah, yes. That that's a cool way to experience this. Yeah. I feel like it's come up before. Well, probably. I mean, I did find this Reddit thread on it from five years ago. <laughs> It's know. always tough because J.K. Rowling, you never know. But yeah. I'm going to go with, I don't know, it's hard. I, I want to say coincidence, but. Mm. Crazy coincidence, if a coincidence. Right. But that's I, life. I, your point was a good one, though, Andrew. Did she even know at that point that death, the Deathly Hallows was the direction she was going to take the seventh book in? Right. Much less the symbol. Right, exactly. All right, let's move on to the next voicemail. Hi, MuggleCast. My name's Caitlin. Um, I'm a Michigan listener who's currently in Connecticut for the summer. I just listened to your latest podcast um, and the beginning discussion about the Warner Brothers cracking down on fan events. Um, I think the weirdest thing about it to me is that wouldn't Warner Brothers make money off of those things? Because who doesn't go to buy a new T-shirt when there's a fan event? Um, I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting point. Uh, and I do think that it might have something to do with Fantastic Beasts' upcoming release um, in the sense that they really want to keep all of the other competitors for fan events down so that they themselves can have more fan events. Just my theory. Anyways, thanks for listening. I, I, I stand by what I said a couple of weeks ago, I think they are just trying to prevent things from getting out of control because somebody watching, let's say that Philadelphia event might get their own idea to do their own. And then suddenly there's another event with 50,000 people and just keep snowballing and snowballing. They're, they're trying to put a lid on things mm -hmm. and that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, to answer Caitlin's question, like Warner Brothers is not directly profiting off of unless there's an official merchandise store that's selling official merchandise at these, you know, street conventions, these street festivals, which there is not. Um, Warner Brothers is not directly profiting. Who are profiting are the businesses that are doing like you know your Etsy Harry Potter shops and and things like that that are showing up for. Or, or like Harry Potter adjacent, people selling suits of armor or hand-carved wooden wands. It's not Warner Brothers. They're not selling, you know, in many cases they don't have official merchandise or official vendors present at these things. But Warner Brothers' solution to uh, the Chestnut Hill people and the Aurora, Illinois people was to charge a licensing fee and then 
Warner Brothers would have um, been making like 33% of all profits or something. Um, but, and th- but, I, yeah. but I think her point was that like in preparation for these events, you go out and buy official merchandise that you wear to the event. I don't know. I still have the same robes that I got 14 years ago. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not buying another set of robes. From, of course, uh-huh. I say that, and they're going to come out with like really cool Ilvermorny robes inspired by Grindelwald. But yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. All right. Uh, next voicemail. Hi, Michael Cast. This is Diana calling from northern Wisconsin. And I was just calling with a theory about the Deluminator. I was recently rereading Deathly Hallows, and I was reading about when Scrimgeour came and gave the trio their gifts from Dumbledore's will, and he gives Ron the Deluminator. And he says, you know, this is unique, possibly one of a kind, believed to be made by Dumbledore himself. And so I started thinking, you know, why did Dumbledore need something that worked in this way? You know, Ron uses it to reunite with Ron and Harry when he leaves. And so Dumbledore, you know, didn't just need it to turn lights on and off. Um, You know, and did he use it in the same way to find somebody? And I started thinking, you know, Ron only hears Hermione's voice come out of it. You know, he didn't hear his parents or brothers who surely said his name sometime in those months as well. So I started thinking, is it just if the person you're in love with says your name, you'll hear it and be able to find them? Or is it anyone you're looking for? If they say your name, you'll be able to find them. And since the Deluminator is seen in the preview or the trailer for Crimes of Grindelwald, I started thinking, you know, is this how Dumbledore is going to find Grindelwald? You know, if Grindelwald says Dumbledore's name, can he then find him? Anyways, I'm interested to hear your theories um, or thoughts about why Dumbledore made something that worked this way. Bye. I like that. I love that. So, the Illuminator helps you find the person you love. That's and we're gonna see it make an appearance in Crimes of Grindelwald. We already know that. We saw it in the trailer. <laughs> it is kind of weird that Dumbledore would be carrying that around again. Yeah. I mean, I think he gives it to Newt and um I think it's Newt and his brother in the graveyard or whatever that are using it to turn out lights, but there is that that alternate purpose, the reminder that Dumbledore invented it and that it does something really funky about the one you love, um, makes me think that Dumbledore might use it to find Grindelwald at some point. Mm-hmm. Or Newt uses it to find Tina. Tina. Oh. Yeah. Or Jacob uses it to find Queenie. You know, I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp last night and they had the Crimes of Grindelwald trailer and um, it was cool to see on the big screen. Oh, cool. uh, but in the same row, a, a girl who was clearly a big Harry Potter fan was freaking out about the trailer. She was so excited for this movie. <laughs> and it reminded me that, you know, a lot of people don't really uh, get all worked up about this Johnny Depp drama. I think for the mass majority of people, they're just excited for another Harry Potter movie. They're excited to go back to Hogwarts. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I was just thinking about how some people don't care about... <laughs> What's going on with Chuck Depp? <laughs> All right, one more voicemail here. Hey, MuggleCast. This is Nate Patton calling in. Uh, just want to give you guys a shout-out. You guys are my favorite podcast. But wanted to talk about, finish your episode last week, but just wanted to mention, when talking about the elements of Order of the Phoenix, why did Cho Chang get no love? You guys didn't even address that. Harry Potter's first love, which I was shocked you guys didn't dive into. Um, dissect a little bit that love shop fiasco that went down and she was all jealous about Hermione. I remember that was such a huge element for the Phoenix when I read it. Um, I would love your thoughts on that. If you thought it was funny, 
it was cringeworthy at the time when you were reading it, where you were at in life when you were reading about that first romance. Let's hear about some of yours. And uh, just thank you so much. Appreciate you guys every week. Highlight. But um, hope you have a good day. Thanks, Nate. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we talked about Cho Chang because it just it doesn't really serve the greater story. Um, I don't really recall having many opinions about the Cho Chang developments in the book. I didn't think their relationship was very good. Like, you didn't really get any chemistry between the two. They just had these crushes on one another. And Cho was only interested in Harry because of um, Cedric dying. Like, she didn't have feelings for him otherwise. The relationship was built was built on Cedric dying. For me, I think that uh, whereas book six is all about, oh, romantic feelings are awkward and relationships are awkward and they're all messy. Uh, book five's relationship between Harry and Cho, which is the first, is just a mess. And you're just like, oh, this is uncomfortable. So whereas it's drawn attention to how uncomfortable it is in book six and you're able to laugh about it a little bit, I just kind of get, it just feels weird to talk about uh, Harry and Cho's unfortunate, you know, love attempt. Cho was very unfair to Harry, though, during that Valentine's Day date. It it was very well established that Harry and Hermione were good friends at that point. And in fairness to Cho, Harry did a very bad job defending yeah. going to see Hermione. Uh, all he had to do was say, look, we're just friends. Ew, Hermione, I'm not interested in her at all. I'm all about you, girl. Yo, let's drink more tea and then go hang out with Hermione yeah. just for a minute. And then we'll go back and <laughs> have a kiss. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I The point that you made about it, we were really focusing on like larger plot elements. Not that it's not important for Harry's kind of personal development outside of uh, finding Horcruxes and defeating Voldemort. But um, yeah got lost in the shuffle i'll say mm -hmm. and i didn't know it at the time but i mean i i wasn't feeling any feelings about the relationship between harry and cho between a boy and a girl mm. and i couldn't figure out why at the time <laughs> <laughs> it was 2003 <laughs> why do i not care about this straight romance <laughs> Anyway, thanks to everybody um, who has been leaving us voicemails. If you'd like to call in with a theory, a question, a comment, feel free to hit us up. one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. Just uh, one request. Try to keep your message to around a minute, minute and a half, and make sure you're in a, a, a place where uh, you'll have good call quality. Sometimes we've got to scrap voicemails because they're too long or they're, or they're, um, the call quality is really bad. Anyway, time now for Quizich. It's Quizich time. Last week's question was, what is the spell that Hermione uses to mark the doors in the revolving room? This is from the Department of Mysteries. The correct answer was flagrate. Uh, it's at least the incantation of this spell, it's F-L-A-G-R-A-T-E. I also, uh, for this week, we accepted flagrant, flagrante. Uh, 
accepted Believe it or not, ha- they have these answers are flagrante. You know, I did a, a quick search and find on my ebook of uh, Order of the Phoenix, and the word flagrant does appear earlier in the book about uh, Harry's flagrant disregard for the rules. So it's kind of cool. But um, anyway, correct uh, winners uh, from last week's Quizich are Sean, Evan, Jennifer Rapp, Crystalline, Max Nuding, Hannah, Lauren, Kelly Morgan, Lupita, Haley, Elsa, Sarah, Rochelle, Jason King, Kitty, William Walton, and Charlie Kay. So thank you all for um, participating. In order to play, all you have to do is tweet at us with uh, this week's Quizich answer and say this week's Quizich answer is blank um so upcoming question for the uh this coming week is who are the two order members that harry runs into in order in the half-blood prince chapter silver and opals Hmm. okay so next week we will start half-blood prince chapter by chapter uh if you have any questions or comments about chapter one please write in or call us we might include your thoughts on the show uh we're excited to get this started like we said previously we have some new elements if you have any ideas for any new elements for this uh new chapter by chapter series feel free to hit us up we'll be happy to take in any and all feedback want to plug our website mugglecast.com it's the hub for everything concerning this wizarding world podcast uh, there you'll find links to our Twitter, which is twitter.com slash mugglecast, our Facebook, facebook.com slash mugglecast, and you can support us. There's a link right at the top, patreon.com slash mugglecast. You will get instant access to lots of benefits. You'll be able to see our show notes in advance. You'll be able to join us for live streams. We record every weekend. Thanks to everybody who is listening live right now and chiming in in the chat. We have an exclusive Facebook group. We send out a physical gift every year. We record bonus MuggleCast installments that are released monthly. We have uh, monthly Google Hangouts for our Slug Club members. We also have the opportunity to co-host MuggleCast, and we have monthly Wizarding World giveaways. There's so much over at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And I'm Micah. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Remember my last... Goodbye, Petunia. (laughs) 